We're going to start a little early today. Got a lot of material to cover. And uh, today's lesson is in uh, chapter 2, 1 Peter 2, begin with verse 11. 1 Peter 2, verse 11. So if you have your Bible, electronic device, turn there with me. And the lesson in whole is basically, you know, if you had to sum it up in two words, it would be innocent suffering. Innocent suffering. Very tough message, I think, for especially this crowd here. Uh, this <laughs> and, uh, but I think you'll uh, see the problem as we go through it. And as I was thinking about the, the movie clip today, I thought, you know, who has suffered more than Tom Hanks in, in the uh, money pit? Uh, if you've ever remodeled your house, you feel for him, right? Uh, but last week in 1 Peter, uh, Peter affirmed that his audience of new Christians was the elect and holy household of God, was the new household. God had started out with Israel as his mediators on earth to reveal himself. But now, after their rejection, uh, God had formed the church. And uh, Peter, who's Jewish, you know, is informing them of this difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And so now the church is the holy household of God. Uh, of course, with all the benefits and blessings and hope that goes with it. So uh, we are to feel uh, privileged and blessed and to worship and praise God for that. Now the issue that he tackles in this section is how, how do we behave on planet Earth, this fallen world that we live in. So uh, we are set apart, uh, the church is, as God's own people, Yet we have to live here now in this fallen world with all its depravity and, and hatred and anger and violence and everything else that you can think of. Uh, so how do we now live in the midst of this world, this difficult world? Uh, and the situation in Paul's day in first century Roman Empire, Christianity was a brand new thing in the world, and, and it was previously dominated, of course, in the first century by pagan polythe polytheistic idolatry. That was the Ro Greek and Roman religion, uh, and mixed in with that was a pretty uh, strong section of Jews all around the Mediterranean world that had their religion of Judaism. So here comes this tiny group of Christians, a tiny minority, seeking to convert the whole Roman Empire. And of course, uh, 275 years later, you know, they would be effective in doing that. But at this time, that Paul's, that, excuse me, Peter is writing, uh, it was just the beginning of that. And so they really had a challenge uh, because they were such a minority. And uh, how could they prove that Christianity, A, is not a threat to any of them, and B, that uh, they represent the true uh, religion, the true God, and, and in other words, to come to Him, leave behind that pagan idolatry and come to the one true God. How can they be a good witness for that and to, and to literally uh, bring people to the Lord? So 
How can they prove that Christianity is not a threat, but a positive change? How could they appeal to pagans who view them as religious nutcases, you know, which they probably looked and said, you know, these Christians are so different. Can you imagine only thinking there's one God? And they, they talk all this stuff about uh, loving one another and all this, you know. And so about the time that Peter wrote this was the time that Nero was the emperor of Rome. And of course, you know the story in 64 AD, uh, Nero was probably, we, we don't know for sure, but it, uh, all the evidence suggests that Nero actually set fire to all the slum areas, the lower income areas in Rome, because he wanted to rebuild it according to his great plan and, and have the, his uh, legacy and glory and everything for rebuilding Rome. And so he started this fire and uh, he didn't want to take responsibility for it. And so who did he blame it on? Of course, was the Christians at the time. And so this was about the time that the intense persecution began. Uh, and so the, the challenge uh, that was issued then, of course, uh, is we are to step out. And he calls them, look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to... Uh, what does he mean by aliens and strangers? Uh, you can see up here on the deal, uh, and he's saying uh, we are outsiders in a sense. We live here in this world, but we're not of it. We're not really a part of it. Uh, and so, um, what do you got? In Hebrews 11, he tells the story, the author of Hebrews tells the story of Abraham. And he says, when Abraham came into the land of Canaan, from, he came from Ur, and God said, pick up and come. So he came, he was an alien wandering around, uh, didn't know anybody, and he was uh, uh, doing that, verse 10, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he was an alien and a stranger in Canaan, but he was there uh, for spiritual purposes because God had commanded him to come and he, he was looking forward in hope to that future. And then also, Philippians 3 tells us our citizenship, we think we're citizens of the United States and everything, and that's just a very temporary thing, uh, but the, uh, eternally and who we really are, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, Jesus Christ. So we really are, in a sense, aliens and strangers to this world. Uh, we're not like the world. We're not supposed to be like the world. Uh, and God sees us as someone who's set apart from the world. And, of course, in the first century, they would certainly have looked at Peter and all the other Christians as weirdos, and so it's, it's a good thing to address them that way, to get their attention, to make them know, you, you guys are different. You're set apart. There should be a difference in your lifestyle and the people around you. All right? So uh, the challenge then, of course, was that the Christians' peaceful, transformed inner lives must be visible and appealing to the world. So... There was a problem in that, though. Before they could even get started doing that, they were slandered. And uh, we, 
just the, the slanders that were they were hit by. If you got that for me, Larry, the slanders. Uh, the, they actually were accused of cannibalism because when they did the Lord's Supper, you know, they uh, said, this is my body, uh, you know, eat and all that. And they said, oh, you know, of course, that was ridiculous. And then secondly, they went around hugging each other and, and loving one another. And they were constantly saying, teaching love one another. And they were going, wait a minute, you know. Uh, and so they were accused of incest. But primarily, the problem was number three here, uh, what was called subversive activity. And of course, that's the beginning of uh, aggressive evangelism. They didn't have that in the Roman Empire. They weren't, they'd never seen that before. People that would, you know, come to your house and knock on the door and share the gospel with you. And uh, wherever they met you, you know, they'd share Christ. They'd never seen anything like that. Uh, and to them, this was, this was horrible. You know, who are these aggressive people that think they're going to convert us to something else, to their own weird religion? Uh, and so uh, many of the places, and you can find this, of course, in the book of Acts, many of the places that Paul went, they started riots because so many people were coming to Christ. They actually had riots in the city. So in... Uh, Acts 16, uh, they, they heal uh, this woman, and so the, he, she can't tell fortunes anymore, you know, because the demon went out of her. And so the owners get all upset because their money train, you know, their ATM machine is gone, and they start a big riot there. And then in Acts 17, um, they, uh, same thing. The, they, they were accused, these men who have upset the world, you know, they're turning everything upside down. They're causing all kinds of trouble. People are going away from uh, our true religion. So a lot of the places they went, and Ephesus is the third, third one in Acts 19. They had a huge riot uh, on Paul's third missionary journey in Ephesus. Uh, they were saying, these, these Christians, they cause so much trouble, you can't believe it. There's riots wherever they go, you know, and all this aggressive evangelism they do, we've got to stamp that out. So that's the, that's the problem that they were facing. And so Peter's job is, okay, how are we going to overcome that? How are we going to overcome that? Uh, there's so much opposition. And, of course, Jesus taught them before he left, you know, in, in, that they were going to face opposition. Uh, he said at the Last Supper, if the world hates you, and, and really the, the Greek word means since, since the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. And then again in John 16, these things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Just expect it. It's a reality. It's going to happen. We're fortunate today just to be made fun of and harassed and uh, sued all, of, all over the country and stuff like that in this country. And, of course, there are um, a lot bigger issues and a lot more persecution in the rest of the world. And there's actually a lot of Christian martyrs even today in the 21st century. Uh, but for them, uh, Paul, for instance, is the greatest example of what we're talking about here. Uh, Paul was saying, you know, talking about people who claim to be Apostles? And he said, no, you know what the mark of a real apostle is? 
as someone who's going through persecution and bearing up under it. So he says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as insane. I more so. Far more labors, far more imprisonments, beaten times of that number, often in danger of death. Sounds like he's bragging about it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that's not something to brag about. He's just saying this is the reality in the first century of uh, answering that call that Jesus gave them, that challenge to go out and preach the gospel to the whole world. So, uh, Jesus told them to, to get used to it, that it was going to happen, and they should expect it. Uh, therefore, the matter of adversity and trouble and peer pressure for Christians uh, is a given. It's a reality. So how does the Bible say we should overcome it? What should be our, our reaction to uh, persecution of any kind? Uh, I'm thinking blow for blow. <laughs> I'm thinking insult for insult. Beat them at their own game. Now that's normal behavior in the world. We're set apart from that. Just the opposite. Uh, Peter's going to say, you overcome it by innocent suffering. And so he says, uh, specifically in uh, verse 11 and 12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, be such good citizens and do so many good deeds so that in, in the thing in which they slander you, the stuff we just talked about, as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds, deeds as they observe them glorify God. It, you, they'll be drawn to it, actually, and glorify God instead of uh, persecute you uh, on the day of visitation. Uh, submit yourselves. Boy, that's a, that's a tough one right there. Uh, that is a dirty word in this country. Submission? Are you kidding me? Uh, you see that word and it makes you kind of jump, right? Uh, people uh, in this country, I never submit. No one tells me what to do. I make my own decisions and run, you know, on and on. You've heard it all. Uh, and so that's a, that's a, you know, revolutionary concept. Submission is an incredible thing to even think that we would be willing to submit to uh, the people around us. And so he, he says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether to a king as the one in authority, even if it's Nero, even if it's Nero. I mean, think, uh, our situation here, you know, people complain constantly, and there's always all these political conversations about how bad things are, and, and those guys in Congress and everything, and the division that's in our government and everything. But they can't even suit up to Nero. He was a maniac. And the depravity that he reached was, you know, beyond our comprehension. Uh, and so Peter's, though, is actually saying submit to Roman authority. And at the highest level, of course, that's the Roman emperor Nero, which, you know, is, seems so illogical that we can't even imagine that, that he would say that submission uh, to these unrighteous pagan idolaters would be the way to go. 
But what he's saying is, I want you to be such good citizens within and under the structure of the Roman Empire that everybody says, boy, those, those people, you know, are, are quality. They're peaceful. They don't cause any trouble. All that stuff I've heard about them is just not true. Uh, so, specifically, he gives, uh, be good witnesses in two ways. Number one, he said in verse 11, abstain from all the fleshly, worldly lusts, the desires of the flesh, uh, common to this world. No matter uh, where or when you live, whether it's then or now, they're pretty much all the same, right? Uh, greed, sex, heavy drinking, all the things that people historically love to do. Uh, and I could get even deeper, but I can see this audience is too naive to, to handle it. And so, uh, yeah, abstain from all the carnal fleshly lusts that are classic of this world and human nature. Uh, the problem, of course, with abstaining with that is that there are two forces at work in all of us. Within us, you've got, uh, on one side, you've got the flesh that's hungry and thirsty and wants sex and every other pleasure that it can think of. It, it longs for more money and greed. How, you know, how can we get more of everything? So you've got that working inside you all to different degrees. So, you know, you look at other people who are really bad and you go, uh, I'm good and they're bad. But all of us, to a certain extent, certain degree, you know, have these fleshly lusts. I don't care who you are. Uh, then on the other hand, of course, you have the Spirit of God within you. The Spirit of God within you who's leading you, guiding you, and teaching you. You know, the old uh, cartoon with the devil on one shoulder and the little angel on the other and they're whispering in both ears. I mean, in a sense, that's really right because within us, we've got these opposing forces that we have to deal with. And if we will live by faith and let the Spirit control us, we can overcome the flesh. And so that's the challenge. Abstain from all that fleshly, worldly stuff that you've known in the past. Uh, instead, secondly, in verse 13, submit, as we said, yourselves to every human institution. Live peaceably, uh, obeying all laws and being a good citizen. Um, and like I said, the problem there is a lot of people are going to say, well, I don't like our government. I don't like this guy we elected, you know. Um, and it doesn't matter. In God's economy, that person is there and in a position of authority, and so you submit yourself to that. Of course, um, with one great exception, do we have the, the Acts chapter 4, Larry? Somewhere? Because naturally, you know, you're thinking, okay, yeah, you can submit to authority, but what if they try to get you to do something that's wrong? Is there an exception to that submission? You know, and the answer, of course, is yeah. And we have uh, somewhere. <laughs> there we go. So in Acts chapter 4, 
uh, Peter and John were arrested for preaching the gospel. And they said, okay. When they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak. This is the, the Jewish governing authorities, the Sanhedrin, that they were living underneath their authority. And they said, we command you. We make it a law that you not speak the name or teach in the name of this Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, uh, we will not violate God's will and His calling upon us. If you're asking us to do something against God, then no, we, we won't submit to that. Uh, and so that's the exception, obviously, that we're talking about here. But in your normal, everyday life, uh, you, you submit to the authority that's there uh, and be a good citizen. All right? Um, also, have we got the uh, passage on, on uh, what, what they asked Jesus in Matthew 22? Okay. Uh, you know the great story here. Uh, Jesus was teaching the same thing that Peter's teaching right here. The Pharisees, uh, they thought, you know, we're going to trap this guy. We're going to make him look bad in front of the crowd. And we know that all Jews hate paying taxes. And they can't imagine paying taxes to a Gentile ruler that we hate. Uh, so uh, they asked this question of Jesus. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach. You know, they're buttering him up, making themselves sound innocent. The way of God and truth and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? So if they say, uh, yeah, pay it, the Jews will be mad at him. If he says, don't pay it, they'll be breaking the Roman law. We got him trapped this time. Right? Uh, not so fast. Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Look, whose inscription is on this coin? And of course, there he is. Caesar. Exactly. So he says, whose likeness and description is this? And they said to him, Caesar. And he said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. He crushed them. <laughs> Not only did he succeed in, in, in answering it legally underneath the Roman authority of taxation. You know, we live in this country and they are the ones that keep the peace. And they maintain the roads, etc., etc., so they have the right to uh, taxation. On the other hand, he also convicted the Pharisees with what he said, render to God what is his. I.e., they're not. They're not giving God his due and the truth that he has sent them in the person of Jesus Christ. So they are violating both in not paying the taxes and also not giving God to God what he is due as well. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, 
submit yourselves to every human institution. So abstain, you know, become a, a morally pure person. And secondly, a perfect citizen submitting yourself. That means, I hate to tell you, you actually do have to pay your taxes. <laughs> You're hoping you wouldn't have to, but sorry about that. Uh, and uh, then what is the application uh, according to Peter here? He goes on to say, uh, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution or to governors sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as a bond slave of God. Honor men, love their brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now, one, of you, one thing you need to know about the Roman Empire also is they had laws, basically a caste system. They had laws that govern uh, who was above you and who could order you around and who you were to submit to. So the social rank in first century Roman world, you can see the, the deal there. Of course, at the top you have the emperor, and then under him the patricians and the senators, and then the equestrians, the plebeians, and the freedmen or soldiers. And then at the very bottom, you would have the servants or slaves. And uh, it's, it was an interesting situation. In the Roman Empire, about half, you know, maybe 40, 50 percent of the population of the Roman Empire in the first century were slaves. And of course, that's a, a, a terrible word to us, and uh, we can't imagine that God would condone that and, of course, he never condones it, but he's basically saying in the situation you find yourself in, you need to submit to authority. And uh, in, in their day, all these people that would be above you on this pyramid, could basically, they basically had more rights than you did. Today, we're all concerned about our rights, right? I got the right. You tell me what to do. No, in those days... Uh, the, even soldiers, you know, they didn't have the rights that plebeians and equestrians and patricians, and of course the emperor had, and you were underneath their authority in, in that sense. Um, now, going back to the issue of slavery, it was different than here because uh, they felt like if you were a slave, you deserved it, and here's why. Slaves then were, had become slaves in war. So basically, you lost a battle, and they said, well, you want to die or you want to be a slave? Slave. <laughs> and then the second way was, uh, we call, would call today bond slave, and it's someone who had debts that they could not pay, and so they were basically sold to the person that they owed money to. So naturally, they said, you know, they didn't have the bankruptcy laws that people have today in our country, uh, and you had to pay your debts. So instead of going to prison or something, they let you work off your debt over a long period of time. So you become bond slaves. And of course, the third way is you could be born into it. And a lot of people actually, because slaves were really, in those days, treated much better. They were educated. They had a lot of the jobs like teachers 
and uh, nurses and just every, you know, everything you can think of. And they were educated. And so a lot of people that were you know, poverty stricken would literally sell their children into slavery because they'd say that at least they'll get something to eat and they'll get an education and they'll have a chance in the world. They stick with us, they're goners, you know. Uh, it was kind of like that in the Depression in the 30s, right? Uh, a lot of people, that's, you know, we had tremendous numbers of orphanages around here because people couldn't afford their kids and took them to the orphanages. All right, so uh, that's a problem. Uh, and now he's going to say, even if you find yourself at the bottom of this pyramid as a servant or a slave, you're still to submit yourselves. It's not that God was condoning slavery. He was just saying, your job is to be a witness for Christ. That's your job. And so how can you best do that in this society that you find yourself in? And so that's the submission uh, to all authority. And you're such a good citizen and such a morally pure person that they're actually drawn uh, to Christ because they see that is what is the life-changing force, force in your life. All right, so uh, applications, number one, are honor and obey all government authorities and law there in verse 13 through 17. Um, whatever they are, wherever you find yourself, no matter how low you are on the totem pole, on the pyramid, uh, honor and obey all authorities and law above you. And then verse 18 through 20 is the part about servants or slaves. Even if you're a servant, be submissive to your masters with all respect. And not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. Can you imagine our reaction to that? Okay, I can understand if I got a really good guy I work for, but not an unreasonable, mean one. I'm not putting up with this, right? That's our natural way of thinking. But, but Peter is saying, you're thinking about yourself. You're thinking about yourself. You, you got it all wrong. You live for Christ. You represent Him now. And therefore see yourself uh, in this role as a servant or a slave, as being a servant, a slave of the Lord's. And your job is, again, one of evangelism in, through your lifestyle. Um, and so submission in the workplace, uh, and of course that social ranking would be very difficult, especially if you had a really bad master who, who would treat you poorly. But what's the deal? Here's nine, verse 19 really just sums up the whole lesson. Verse 19 kind of just wraps it up. He says, for this finds favor with the Lord if for the sake of conscience toward God a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Did you get that? That's, that's so awesome. God is saying, if you suffer innocently, God will reward you greatly. God will reward you greatly. Now, 
who are some examples of that? Surely there must be some biblical examples if that's true. Do we have any of those, Larry? Yeah, I mean, if you know the story of uh, David, King David in 1 Samuel, he was harassed by Saul. I mean, Saul threw spears at him. He, he'd walk in to serve him to play music and everything, and he'd be answered with a spear thrown at him. You know, you, it's like playing dodgeball with, with this guy, right? Uh, and so after that happened three times, he got the message from Jonathan, you, you probably better stay away. <laughs> But still, Saul chased him around for the next 10, 12, 15 years trying to kill him. And he had to live in caves in the outdoors and eat the worst food. I mean, just a very, very difficult lifestyle that David went through. But because he suffered innocently, he had the opportunity twice, if you remember, to kill Saul and didn't do it. Uh, and because he suffered innocently, David was greatly... Um, rewarded by God. Joseph, you know the story of Joseph, his brothers hated him. He was kind of the favored uh, son. And so uh, they beat him up and threw him in a pit. And they thought, hey, we're not making any money off this. They pulled him out and sold him into slavery and he ends up down in Egypt. And then uh, he is uh, brutalized by uh, his master's wife. You know, she accuses him of false crime. He ends up in a dungeon for several years. Uh, but Joseph finally was rewarded greatly by God for suffering innocently. Job, you know the story of Job. He was crushed by the devil, did nothing to deserve it, couldn't figure it out for the longest time. And at the end of the book, of course, God uh, restores him and rewards him for his suffering. Uh, and Paul, as we read earlier, uh, he... He served God in this way, but he was constantly, as he's doing the right thing, being obedient to God, he's being persecuted, he's being beaten, thrown in jail, uh, threatened, but he held the course, and he suffered innocently, and so he was greatly rewarded. And of course, the ultimate was Jesus on the cross. The ultimate was Jesus. His innocent suffering resulted in our atonement. It resulted, uh, the climax, of course, is Jesus on the cross, suffered and died to atone for our sins. And we see in Philippians 2, uh, we're told that because he was obedient to the Lord and suffered innocently, he was greatly exalted to the highest position at the right hand of God Almighty. Uh, and also in Isaiah 53, uh, he talks uh, a lot about, the prophet talks about this Messiah and how he's going to give himself up to the Lord. Uh, and he says, uh, God looked down and saw we had a severe problem. What was it? All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. So even though we deserved it, Jesus got the punishment that we deserved. Uh, our iniquity fell on, on His shoulders. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He did, not, he did not complain. Didn't open His mouth. Didn't defend Himself. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. Um, 
and on and on and on. Uh, but down in, in verse 9 we read, His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. And because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, and he went on to say, God greatly exalted him to the highest position, the prophet said. And so Jesus was the ultimate example of what Peter is talking about here. Um, and then uh, the third application that he's going to talk about in 1 Peter is in the beginning of chapter 3. And in the beginning of chapter 3, uh, you see he's talking about relationships. And of course, the most important one uh, that people uh, are witness to is through your marriage. Marriage, right? So, probably there's no other institution, there's no other relationship that receives more scrutiny from your friends and family than your marriage. Um, and so, uh, we know that everyone is watching us <laughs> that we know to see how your marriage goes out. Uh, and, of course, marriage is very difficult. Um, and we are to be an instrument of God's within our marriage, even if one or the other is not a believer in Christ, we are to be such a good spouse or such a good person that we win him, him or her over to the Lord uh, through your uh, great lifestyle and treatment of your spouse as well. Um, of course, uh, the contemporary marriages today have changed so radically in the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, we've got now, for the first time, more wives leaving husbands than vice versa. It used to be a long time ago. The husbands always left the wife. But it's just the opposite now. And, of course, you know probably that the divorce rate for Christians is about the same as non-Christians, which I don't understand, but that's about, you know, the problem that we're facing here. In California, the divorce rate is so high, they now have stores where you can rent wedding rings. <laughs> I'm not making that up. You can rent wedding rings in California. Uh, the reality, though, you know, when you think about it, the reality is all marriages are happy. It's the living together afterwards that causes the problem. <laughs> Uh, and in a bad marriage, in a bad marriage, where I'm told that there's three phases to a bad marriage. Ideal, ordeal, then new deal. <laughs> That's what happened. Uh, comedians always have the answer to, to these interpersonal relationships. Uh, and uh, you, you may have read a long time ago, a uh, best-selling book came out a long time ago, Men Are From Mars and Women Are From Venus. And it does a good job of pointing out the difference between men and women and why they have uh, a lot of uh, difficult issues. And one of the things that jumped out at me is, you know, men like barbaric activities like football and hunting and stuff like that. Women are focused on communicating on communicating and, and the relationship, see? Uh, and women average about 15,000 words a day. 
But men speak only an average of 5,000 words a day. So on a normal day, the man has spoken his 5,000 words before he gets home. <laughs> but the wife still has 9,000 words to go. And these words must be said. Theologians say uh, that's why God created man first so he could get a chance to speak. <laughs> so, but the real issue here is within the marriage, even if you feel you're right, even if you think your spouse, you know, the innocent suffering, you know, people see, boy, she is a saint putting up with that guy. How many times have you heard that, right? Uh, and that's the author's point, you know? Uh, women, you're to respect the husband even if he doesn't deserve it, you know, which is incredibly difficult. I'm not saying, you know, take any kind of abuse or anything like that that would be considered uh, bad or illegal. But I'm just saying, you know, just the normal uh, relationship issues that, that we all have. And the men are to love the women unconditionally. And in Ephesians 5, it says, you both submit to each other and love each other unconditionally. And even if it means, again, innocent suffering, you have to put up with stuff that you don't think you should. Uh, because you have to see yourself. Uh, it's a three-person relationship, right? You think there's only two people in a marriage, but you've got the husband, wife, and the Lord. And so it's not just the spouse that you, that you please. You're actually in the marriage to please the Lord as well. Even if it means innocent suffering. So let me conclude with uh, another very difficult issue. In Romans 12, 18, uh, this is something we all face. Uh, it has to do with revenge, retribution, forgiveness, right? We all struggle with this issue. Uh, and uh, the author Paul says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So you do whatever you can do in a relationship to make sure it's, there's peace. Uh, and never take your own revenge beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. You realize that, you know, God is the ultimate judge. He's going to straighten this stuff out. It's not up to you to do that, to take your revenge. Uh, God is going to uh, be the righteous judge uh, who will, and I say that because we're not good judges. We're selfish judges. Only God is actually a righteous judge. So let's leave it to Him to make these uh, decisions and these judgments. Uh, and it is written, it says in the Bible, that he will do that. Vengeance is mine, it says, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. That was an image in those days of shaming someone. Some, some person acted like a complete creep. But you were so nice to them, they were shamed. They were like, Wow, I can't believe, you know, this person. 
And uh, it changes the relationship when you do that. For in so doing, do not be overcome by evil. Don't let their evil overcome you, but you overcome evil with good. And again, verse 19 in 1 Peter 2, uh, God rewards innocent suffering. As much as it sounds distasteful, this is the will of God and part of your lifestyle evangelism to the world around you. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. Thank you, Lord, uh, that you have chosen us and that you've lifted us up and blessed us as your holy household. And I pray, Lord, that we would all be convicted now to go out and represent you well and make you look good. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Ha, ha, ha.